Saving Tomorrow's Planet is a podcast talking to pioneering people taking action to save the planet. And today we're talking to a woman who epitomizes the purpose of this podcast. Christina Dean has taken and is taking action in bucket loads, enough to humble the best of us. What I love about talking to people here is that I also learn so much from our guests. And one big learning that Christina crystallizes is that so much that's driving the climate crisis is the supply of products and services at the lowest cost. Low cost drove production from the West to the low cost salaries of Asia, both bringing welcome prosperity to the populations of those countries, but also an explosion in global consumption. Low-cost airlines have given access to the world to millions of people, but have amplified the particular pollution in the lower stratosphere. And Christina explains starkly, in a way I never realised, how low-cost polymers versus high-cost cotton has allowed the exponential consumption of clothing and fashion, with one huge knock-on effect that is new news to many of us. But I will let Christina reveal that to you directly. Now, before we start, let me also explain that I want you to hear Christina explain her backstory as it informs the actions she has taken. And near the middle, I let Christina just talk and share all her incredible knowledge without interrupting her because that was the right thing to do. So let's start as I ask Christina where she is now. There might not be a normal answer to that, but right now I'm sitting in a sofa in a games room in um, my UK house uh, where I'm based for probably three quarters of the time between here and Hong Kong. So I'm typically to be found at Heathrow Terminal 5. What's the journey to getting to Hong Kong? What's that story? It's interesting. Well, I left the UK 13 years ago um, when um, actually I set off to have a bit of an adventure with my then two kids. I decided that it would be fun to raise them in another country, which was similar to how I was raised in South Africa and so we packed a a suitcase and off we went thinking we'd only go for a couple of years. We picked Hong Kong because um, my husband is in the financial services and so basically we thought well let's just go to Hong Kong for a couple of years and 13 years on we are still entrenched in the wonderful city of Hong Kong and quite honestly it's through having lived in Hong Kong that my eyes and my whole life has been radically changed around you know, what I do, what I think of the world and and being entrenched in Asia has been incredible. So just perhaps tell us what is your story about being interested in the environment and passionate about the human impact on the environment and what we can do? Yeah, so really unexpectedly, obviously, and I moved to Hong Kong very, um, actually, I was working as a journalist when I first moved to Hong Kong. And I wrote for a couple of years freelance for different, you know, newspapers, magazines, etc. And I traveled extensively and I was really struck by the the huge pollution landscape that is China and Asia and you know I dug into it a lot looking investigatively actually why why was it so bad and I'm a nosy person by nature and coupled with a journalist you know give a nosy journalist a pen or a keyboard and they become a big pain in the you know what so I just kept on researching it and ultimately in trying to find a balanced view about the problem of production in China um, I didn't find that anyone was really raising awareness about the textile industry 
per se, exactly, sorry. So therefore, I set up Redress, which um, has a mission to reduce waste in the fashion industry. It's a registered charity NGO, um, and I set that up in 2007 at a very critical point when the fashion industry basically was having its heart ripped out of it um, due to the sort of advent of these very different supply chains and um, alongside that very different methods of buying clothes, which we have been fully, you know, going to town on for the last 15 years, i.e. overconsumption. So before we get there, can can you just uh, come back to what you discovered in China, first of all, because it'd be interesting just to get a couple of uh, insights. Yeah. Because not many of us are, are seeing it firsthand and you are so. Yeah, I suppose. What did I discover? I mean, there's another little key nugget of weirdness, which has um, been very key for me, which the weirdness is actually I'm a qualified dentist. And I was also a practicing dentist in London, which is probably why I left the UK, ran away from dentistry and and, and also London. Um, the point to your question is that I traveled extensively, not not just in China, but also throughout Asia. And part of that drive to travel was because I was young and I was having a great time. But mainly, I was also providing free dental services to very marginalized communities. And by this, I mean, you know, I was able to go into prisons, I was working on sex workers, I was working with uh, orphans, slums, you name it. And it was this incredible two-year on-and-off uh, journey into the mouths of the people of the world. Um, and at the same time, I was also working as a journalist. And it was these two things that really ignited in me a very deep-rooted anger and, and ambition and frustration all rolled into one. And, and, and this is the anger and frustration. The people of the world who I experienced very close to in those years, whilst pulling out their teeth, um, were really struggling with all sorts of challenges of poverty. And at the same time, their health and other people like them are really being affected by what the West sees as the right to consume and to produce in developing countries. And quite honestly, I think that I think it's wrong that we have built our economy on production at the cost of people's health. And I don't think it's right that, you know, I believe in public health. I believe very passionately that people should not have their health taken away from them just so that we can have cheap clothes. And what did you see concretely in the way that we're manufacturing and that we're manufacturing in China uh, mm. has an impact on their health? I mean, I have to say I've cycled throughout southern China and I've in order to look at manufacturing myself. I've never been into a place that is so bad that I wanted to fall to the ground and weep. You know, I've just seen a lot of the scale of this sector. So, for example, you can read that 20% of, you know, China's ground soil is highly contaminated. When I started, you know, uh, 19 out of the world's top 21 most polluted cities were in China. So the point I'm making is a lot of the statistics around water pollution, soil pollution, air pollution, carbon, etc., you can't really see it and you can't really sniff it. You know, God forbid, you don't really want to eat the, the soil or, or drink the water. So the point that I'm making there is I don't have a really shocking visual story to tell you, unfortunately, but I have a constant story of it. And I can say when I cycled throughout southern China, it was the enormity of production that was the thing that weighed on me rather than one scene. But to hear they're earning six pence an hour and living on metal bunk beds with nothing but one micro sheet and no personal items for six months a year at a time. I don't know if you've got an image like that. Well, actually, I mean, you say that, but, you know, I've spent time in dormitories. In fact, you know, um, I've actually slept in dormitories um, through in Bangkok, in China, southern China, Vietnam. 
and um, what you're saying doesn't shock me. I mean, it doesn't I, sound I, I, shocking. I know because I do, but yeah, it was somehow the fact that we're working for six pence an hour, and you know, we're looking at seven pounds twenty an hour as a minimum wage. You know, one can imagine why so much production has gone there, and why everything we get is so cheap when that is the scale of difference of salary. Really, the sort of dehumanisation yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, I have to say, what would shock me about it is that you're not seeing what you're not seeing. So whatever you see is the stuff that's okay to see. The thing that freaks me out is the stuff you can't see. I was spending time with a company that does chemical testing, and this guy who had more PhDs than, you know, I've had hot dinners, I asked him, you know, what keeps you up at night about chemicals and textiles? That was his speciality. And he said, it's the chemicals that we're not testing for. Oh, wow. And that's the same Whatever we see, it might shock you, but there's a lot more that you ain't seeing. Yeah, very yeah, good. that's the bit that would worry me. Yeah, very interesting. So let's come on to start actually with materials uh, in clothing. You know, tell me what are the materials being used in the fashion industry? I've become relatively expert on this topic. I wouldn't call myself a materials expert, but in order to understand sustainability in fashion and to understand the fashion industry, you obviously have to understand the building blocks, which are the fibres that we are all wearing. And so by and large, roughly speaking, 63% of all of our fibres are synthetic. So that comes from oil. And then, you know, they can be processed into polyester or nylon or other derivatives of a synthetic fibre. And then I'm going to say around 23-ish percent are cotton. And I'm going to say the other 11 percent other. The other can include, obviously, animal fibre. So that could be skins or, you know, woolen, woolen fabrics, obviously silk. And then increasingly, there are more uh, trees that are being used for, for fibre, which actually, yeah, they're, they're cellulose fibres that go into fabrics from yeah. trees. Yeah. So why is it that so much of the material is actually man-made? Because I suspect most of us, if we were to guess a number, we might guess a number that's perhaps 30 or 40, but 60 <laughs> may not be the number that comes to mind. Why are we using so many man-made fibres? Well, it's a price, it's a price point um, discussion because, I mean, I'm no expert on oil prices yeah. and commodities and all of that. And obviously that ties into it very closely. But by and large, polyester is cheaper than cotton. A cotton is an expensive crop. It's expensive for quite obvious reasons because it's a pretty useless crop. I mean, how useless can it be that you have a really weak plant with a small flower that requires a huge amount of water? It's highly susceptible to, pest, um, to you know, um, bugs and eating it, etc. You have to work very hard to keep cotton alive. It's a stupid plant. And then there it feels nice and all the rest of it. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a particularly with India, you know, it's actually really built into their history um, and many global economies as well. So basically... Um, it's a price discussion, really. It's a very interesting point because it hasn't been thrown up, actually, just as you talk about it and realising something has to be grown while the other thing can be just, you know, manufactured, you can yeah. realise that the price could be different. Now, then let's get into the fibres. What's happening with the fibres that you've experienced from man-made versus cotton? So there's not, in my view, one evil fibre. Some people might say polyester is the evil fibre out there. We can talk more about that. But essentially, many fibres play a role in the fashion industry. So... In answer to your question, the ultimate challenge that we have, if we all agree that polyester has a place in the fashion industry, whether it's because of price or it's because of the function of a, a product, and I'm talking about, let's just say, a pair of leggings, there is a need for these fibres. The problem that we have is so basic and yet so difficult to untangle 
and it is the blending of man-made and natural fibers together so what that means is that for many years um you know fabric manufacturers clothing brands have been buying and demanding actually that we blend polyester cheap durable thin with cotton feels nice more expensive so by blending these two fibers together you get a more luxurious feeling product at a lower price point and the problem with it is that it's very, very difficult to recycle that. You know, I had a semi-argument with some guy who'd made his godillions recycling paper. And I said to him, oh, yeah, it's so easy. You just had to recycle paper. You know, pulp is pulp, is it not? And I was defending the fact that recycling clothes is so much more complicated because we're looking at blended fibers. Anyway, we argued a lot. I think I won. Recycling clothes, when they're all blended with different fibers, it's very difficult because it requires different chemistry, different processing, different heats, different, different everything in order to separate out two very distinctly different fiber groups. <laughs> and that is why we're in a massive pickle because we have been feeding the fashion industry with a cocktail of different blended materials. And now we're sitting with a gigantic pile of clothing waste around the world that we cannot recycle because it's a mixed up mess of fibers wow gosh that is shocking so let's just then just disaggregate that a little bit so if i had a cotton top pure cotton what would be the recycling process that could be applied so that that actually is reusable as a material yeah, so that's great. 100% cotton or even sort of 98% cotton is a dream because it is recyclable. Most of it would be done by mechanical means, which is a bit archaic. I mean, it's Dickens's time as far as I'm concerned. What that basically means is that you put it in a machine and it chops it up and it brings back the fiber. But the key but is that you go from a uh, cotton length of... Um, x centimeters and i'm looking at my i'm going to say it's like four i'm looking at it um yeah. and it goes down to three so you you degrade the quality of it so when you respin it it becomes a lower quality fiber and fabric because yeah. if you imagine all the kind of it frays yeah. because that's not fiber um so you can do that until the cows come home but you're essentially continually degrading yeah, the fiber okay the, the big push, and in, in, in polyester recycling, it's different because different you'd use chemicals to recycle the polyester. So, I mean, polyester can be recycled indefinitely, really, because it's a, a chemical process to a chemical compound that can be, you know, recycled. It can be done. Um, the truth is, though, that not many products are recycled over and over again. It tends to be that after they've been recycled twice that the quality does come down. We could do something with cotton, but we've got a degradation. We do something with polyester, but there's probably a degradation. We do hear that. The recycling isn't an yes. infinite process, actually. Yes. Then we've got this group of mixed in, uh, fibres. Yes. Now, tell me yes. what technology exists anywhere in the world, if at all, yes. to do with that. The, the big push is for chemical or sort of te new techie and recycling systems which if we talk about a blend for now you can look at different sort of processing that can separate out these two fibers and so they either separate them out by destroying the cotton and keeping the polyester or by destroying the polyester and keeping the cotton but you basically have to extract one of the materials out and then you appreciate that you've completely degraded or changed the other right. 
that's a, that, that is a chemical process or you know hydrothermal again i to be honest there's a lot of ip sensitive stuff out there and i'm not pretending to actually be a tech expert on recycling yeah. I'm, I'm, no, you know there's a lot of stuff happening in labs and probably under lock and key because there is a search for the solution and whoever makes it at scale will run away with all the cash in the world that are doing it but it's not really big enough yet we need to scale it up like you know, the big bad world where we need it so much more. So the point is also um, the chemical recycling, um, even of cotton, You going back to that T-shirt, you don't just have to shove it in the mechanical machine. You can use enzymes. And then what that does is it breaks down the, the cotton fiber into a cellulose. So we should now go back to you and uh, your charity that you started in Hong Kong and tell us what it is and then... So I set up Redress, registered charity. We've had two missions in 13 years. The first mission was to promote sustainable fashion, which I discovered after two years was way too broad. So then we changed it to, uh, we have a mission to reduce waste in the fashion industry by promoting the circular economy. And the reason we only focus on waste reduction is because we want to see impact and we don't want to have to argue about what the right thing to do is. Not that many people are arguing, but we know clearly what we're doing and we're only focused on waste reduction because uh, waste is a big crisis in the industry and to deal with waste means that we can benefit immediately. Like, I know I'm going to be dead in a, I don't know, tomorrow or in a few years i don't know when i'm going to die the point is i want to see the impact quickly because we know on climate change that we've got a short amount of time so therefore we're passionate only on waste reduction good so tell me exactly what you're doing in hong kong yeah i'll, I'll sort of say why and then specifically in hong kong you see um as we know waste has increased um over the last 20 years it's you know production has doubled waste has i don't know probably doubled and by the way in the next 10 years if we carry on as is waste is going to increase yet again by 60%. So we, waste is a horror, horror topic and it's only getting worse. And particularly in Asia where not only, you know, do we have the world's production and the world's factories, but we also have the world's consumption boom, you know, obviously because of China and more, you know, the emerging markets in Asia, broadly speaking. So we've got a consumption crisis in Asia and also production. Now, what do we actually do about it? That's the million dollar question. <laughs> so we have two pillars to reduce waste. Pillar one is to prevent waste from being generated. And this is a very long term educational program, which looks at the um, two targets, which are A, designers and B, consumers. So we have different educational programs that are working with universities. Um, we have 120 universities. We organize the world's largest sustainable fashion design competition. It's called the Redress Design Award. We have teacher training packs. We have online learn. I think I'm right in saying we had about 400,000 hits just to our learn page. It's all open source. We're specifically going after emerging designers. So the reason for that is because they're just starting out their careers. And so we're really looking at life cycle, um, sustainable design, sourcing, etc. Mm. The second target under preventing waste is consumers. And educating consumers is the most thankless task in the whole wide world. And I'm going to make that official because it's never ending. It's really difficult. And, you know, it's easy to educate someone to eat healthily because it benefits them. But to try and inspire them to change the way that they enjoy clothes is a different thing because clothes are really complicated because they're deep. Somehow they get into our psyche and they completely make us crazy. But so 
we do educate consumers and we do that through through different like uh, workshops in Hong Kong and things like that. We also have a t we have a TV series called Frontline Fashion which is more for Asian broadcast and more recently we've we've moved season 4 of Frontline Fashion which we've actually just launched into digital. So it's kind of like it's a TV series about how fashion designers are changing the future of fashion and it's to really excite consumers. And then I we we book called Dress with Sense which I co-authored it's a practical guide to a conscious closet, and it is in French, Korean, Russian, obviously English, we have an American version, and that is a very kind of practical guide for how consumers, which I hate the word, but we'll call them consumers, can love fashion in a more sustainable way. So then in a nutshell, because I feel like I'm really over-talking here, forgive me, but the second main, the second pillar that Redress does is to transform waste. Now, again, Redress has been around for 13 years and with a mission to reduce waste in the fashion industry, what has happened is that brands and businesses have been for 10 years, I'm going to say, and more increasingly, more recently, I'm going to either word, use the word donating or dumping, it depends who it is, their excess materials onto Redress and we welcome it, although at times we struggle to cope with it. So therefore, what that means is that we've been taking in excess materials and redistributing them within the circular economy because essentially what we hate is the thought of textiles being landfilled or incinerated. And what freaks us out and absolutely infuriates me is the suggestion by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation that the equivalent of one dumper truck of textiles is either landfilled or incinerated every second. Now, that really makes me furious. When we go back to why I got into this in the first place is that every single fibre has an impact on the planet and on, on the people, the dying, the, you know, the, the processing, the extraction, the carbon, the disgustingness that goes into textiles. And then we have the kind of audacity and the stupidity to be incinerating and landfilling one dumper truck every second. So that's really what gets me up every day. Could you talk specifically about the collection you're doing of used clothes in Hong Kong? You know, how that's going and what you're doing yeah. with it. One of the waste streams that Redress is dealing with is post-consumer clothing waste. What that means is people's old clothes that they don't want. And so essentially we have collection containers throughout Hong Kong. For a couple of years we were doing that with Zara throughout their stores in Hong Kong and also Macau. And we've just started with Gap. And then... In Every year we do an enormous collection in October called the Get Redressed October. Now we do it because we like the biggest challenges. Governments don't really know what to do with old clothes. So as an NGO we've decided to dive into a really nasty horrible area which is post-consumer. So we collect, we sort and we redistribute. But in order to do that we have an army of volunteers because this is manual back-breaking, soul-destroying work because you are basically sorting through everybody's failed consumption and the stuff that they don't want, much of it is absolutely lovely. And so we sort, and we have we have about 25 charity beneficiaries. Redress is a charity, we sell all the best stuff, so it's fundraising for ourselves. And then we also gift to other charities. We get so many clothes that we cannot get rid of all of them in Hong Kong. And because we cannot accept putting them into landfill for the most obvious of reasons, we're even trialing turning these clothes into energy pellets. And there's a cost with that. And we're, we're, we're looking at this in terms of um, preparing ourselves to understand the, the challenges and the costs of dealing with clothes. Ultimately, we don't want to collect clothes. We don't want to do it. We want to have enough knowledge to go out there and to argue the point of why governments should step up and actually 
help this industry or rather um, clip the wings of this industry such that there is more responsibility for the, 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 the excess that's made. And do you see any government regulation being interested in putting a responsibility, I guess, on the manufacturers? The only thing I know, and that's really looking at the UK policy, and it isn't actually policy, unfortunately, there was the Environmental Audit Committee that did a brilliant um, uh, report on called Fixing Fashion. Um, and it was basically an investigation into the fashion industry and its impact on the planet and the economy, etc. And in this report, it put forward recommendations for the UK government. And one of those recommendations was a 1p levy per garment sold that would be paid by the brand that sold, you know, the end business that sold that to the consumer. Had that gone through, which it didn't, it would have raised £35 million for the UK economy, uh, which is more than pays for the £28 million that's currently spent on handling textiles or clothing. I, I would need to cross-check in UK landfills. With this charity, with all the work you've been doing, and it is very impressive because you've done it you know, on the back of your own shoulders. As we know, there are lots of barriers and challenges to this, but luckily I'm able to give to you a wish that can come true, that could achieve anything that you would want to, to make, as you said, that lasting impact before you die tomorrow, as you mentioned. So uh, I'm donating this wish. What would you love to be able to do in the short term to really change, make an impact that we can all be proud of? I would like to see consumers fall in love with fashion and the good that it can do. Hmm. Is that too vague? It's not vague, but it sounds about it sounds like a consumerism driven wish, one where actually more people would fall in love and therefore go out and buy more. It's, not at all. Okay, so I, I've no. misunderstood it then. So would you explain it no. then? No, so for me to fall in love with fashion is to actually value it for, for, for what it represents, to fall in love with the th very things that clothe us and get us around the day. Um, and to fall in love with it means to respect it because everything that we're we we are wearing had an impact on somebody else and we should fall in love with it and honour it and take good care of it. Right, very good. Okay, well, that was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.